Well, first of all, I just want to I just want to thank Brother Landon for filling in for me uh, during my uh, dental extravaganza. I don't know any other way to put it, but uh, it was quite a journey, and I'm grateful to be back at least to whatever speed I'm at presently. Uh, but uh, thank you, Brother Landon, for uh, your willingness to preach to us and share with us the word. I, I thought, you know, the Beatitudes, I don't think they could have been handled any better. So I was really uh, impressed by uh, just listening to Brother teach us and, um, and just the richness of going back to the content of what Jesus uh, teaches there in, uh, in Matthew 5 and just how refreshing it was just to hear the words of our Savior again, and that was just uh, delightful. I, I miss preaching a gospel. I haven't been in a gospel for years and years, and I, I miss uh, just going through a gospel. So uh, it was refreshing to receive that word. Um, but it's good to be with you, and it's very, very good to be back uh, in the book of Hebrews, where we are now going to commence our exposition of chapter 10 of Hebrews. If you can imagine, we are still in chapter 10. And uh, we are not done yet because we have two more messages uh, to tackle here in this uh, chapter. Uh, today, our focus is going to be uh, verses 35 and 36. Let me just read those two verses to us one more time, and then we'll pray together. Let's read this text. It says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Let's pray together one more time. Heavenly Father, we simply express to you our great gratitude, our love to you, O God. And yet, Lord, as much as we can express our love for you, we know that it pales in comparison to the love that you have lavished us with in your Son, Jesus we're so thankful, Lord, that we stand in the new covenant with our sin forgiven, with our, our minds renewed, and with your law written on our hearts to do your will. Father, we know that doing your will is often not easy for us. And we confess, O oh God, that we are weak and feeble, that we are fragile and that we are transient, that we are finite. And so, God, you are a great God, and you are greatly to be praised. And we confess openly our dependency upon you. We pray that you would strike from our hearts any sense of self-reliance, any sense that we can do this on our own. And so, Father, we petition you now. We ask you, revive in our hearts a commitment to seek you. As the psalmist declares, you said, seek my face, and your face we will seek. And so, Lord, revive us again as we look at your word. We pray that you would use this passage of Scripture to speak to us, to encourage us, that you would lift up the weary hearts in this church. We know that part of much of evangelicalism today is that we come in weighed down with trouble and trial and temptation and sin, and yet we are very good at putting on a face and a mask and the appearance that everything is fine, but inside 
we're desperate. And so, Father, we confess, help us. We confess, we need you. And we need your Spirit now to be active, to move among us, to minister to us, and to sanctify us for your great name. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This passage is going to take us from a place of remembrance to a place of present psychological state of mind, a present perspective. You remember earlier that the author, the pastor of this church in verse 32, called the church to remember their former days. He was calling them to reflect on the fact that when they had been enlightened, when they had, genu- when they had initially entered into the faith, that they endured a great trial, and that was very, very instructional for us, and it was very important in that it taught us that what we need to do in our Christian walk is we need to reflect on what it is that God has brought us to. Being enlightened meant that God took us out of darkness and now put us in the kingdom of His light. And as much as is necessary for us to reflect, all that reflection is for our present state of mind. So important for us to understand what the Bible teaches in terms of trial, suffering, affliction. The Bible does not speak in any sort of delusional or delusions of grandeur when it says, or as Jesus said in John 16, in this life you will have tribulation. The word tribulation there means crushing. You will go through things in this life that will feel bone-crushing, soul-shattering, earth-shaking. It will rattle you to your very core. This happens on a societal level. It's happening on a global level. This happens on a social level. But it also happens on an existential level, spiritually, internally, personally. And as a pastor, I'm concerned for our people that you be fortified, that you be strengthened in your inner man to endure, to be able to uh, do as the Scripture here is calling us to do, and that is to endure, to to look to the reward, to do the will of God, and to receive what was promised. This scripture is very basic. I'll try not to complicate it for us. It is very basic what this is calling us to. And I want to remind us of the words of Jesus. It was Jesus, if you remember, He declared to us in Matthew chapter 10, After he said to his disciples, you have a very, very difficult life ahead. So difficult, in fact, that brother will betray brother to death. And in the early first century, that's exactly what happened as these Jews went from being associated with synagogue, being associated with the temple, being associated with the Pharisees, with the Sanhedrin, being associated with the Jewish people, to being ostracized because of one name. Jesus of Nazareth. From there, Jesus says, 
Father and child, children will rise up against parents, causing them to be put to death. That's how deep the animosity between the people that remain faithful to Judaism and those who left Judaism because of the new covenant in Christ. So Jesus says this, You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who endures to the end that will be saved. Think about that. We are facing a massive challenge in our Christian walk. Christianity is not a a, a walk in the park. And this is very, very important for us American Christians. Turn on the television. Well, as long as you avoid the news nowadays. But you turn on any advertisement, you go to the store, you go to any product, any consumerism whatsoever, and the thing that they're trying to peddle to you is this is what you need to make your life better. Take this product, take this service, take this this, uh, object to yourself, and you will be fulfilled, you will be happy, you will meet all your ambitions, all your dreams, you will be fulfilled, get the next technology, get the next gigabyte, get the next app. Just go, don't get the Pokemon app. You might fall off a cliff somewhere. If you hear what's going on with this, I don't understand it. Had Robert try to explain it to me, I still don't understand it. At any rate, we are bombarded with suggestions that if we just take that one thing, we will be happy and fulfilled and our life will be better. From the minute we're born in this culture, We strive towards convenience. We strive towards ease. We strive towards reaching a plateau where things are where they are. You're the right social status. You're at the right marital status. You have the right material status. You have the right economical status. You have the right career choice. You live in the right neighborhood. You have the right house. You have the right car. You have the right clothes. Everything. We are trying to recreate paradise for ourselves. But the Bible shatters the illusion of that very quickly when it tells us that trials are promised to us. This is a promise. You're not going to find it at the front, front cover of a Bible promise book. You know, they make them real cute and pretty and de- decorate them. <laughs> but they won't put this promise on the front, right? In this life, you will have crushing. So, it makes sense that much of the Bible is written in such a way to call us to endure and to give us the keys to success of endurance. James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man that perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. You see that? Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. One trial? No, no, no. That's a comprehensive way that the author is uh, describing the entirety of the Christian life. And here, the entirety of the Christian life is described with one word. Trial. You're under trial. You're in a test. You're in a race. You are being tested every day. Your faith is constantly being challenged, tested. It's being challenged by the adversary, by your flesh, by the world, by the devil. You name it. 
many obstacles lay in front of us. Therefore, it becomes of optimum importance that we learn how is it that we will overcome. You know what's so relevant for us today as we go through the book of Hebrews? Is that Hebrews is written to a church or churches who are being surrounded by the potential, if not in fact the actuality, of apostasy. I don't know if you've seen apostasy that much in your Christian life. I have. I can name person after person after person after person after person who made a public profession to Jesus Christ. I have baptized such people who then very shortly after walked right back out of the church into the oblivion of the world forsaking the safety of Jesus Christ for the full force of the enemy, the world, the sin, the flesh, the devil. And Hebrews is written to a church that is facing the potential of massive apostasy. This is not unique to the book of Hebrews. Galatians chapter 1, the apostle Paul tells the Galatians, I am absolutely shocked. This is an apostolic church in Galatia. I am shocked that you are so quickly The stopwatch didn't even start, and you're already deserting the gospel. You're already abandoning Jesus Christ. You're already turning to another gospel. Not that there is another gospel. Got to throw that in there, right? You may think that you're going to just a different form of spirituality, a different form of religion, but the Apostle Paul makes it very clear, there is no other form of spirituality. There is no other form of religion. You are either in the gospel or you are a heretic. Jesus is the one who said, narrow is the way. Was Jesus narrow-minded? Oh, you better believe it. He walked the razor's edge of truth, and they persecuted him, and they they crucified him for it. That's what we need to do, brothers and sisters. We need to walk the razor's edge of truth. How do we do that? By persevering. Well, how do we persevere? How can we have hope and assurance in this world that is just filled with, with adversity, with compromise? Oh, boy, I tell you what, the compromise is everywhere. Now we have major evangelical leaders coming up here in this massive D.C. Uh, rally Uh, joining forces with the papacy, with the Pope. Uh, This is kind of ironic, but my wife and I had a a young lady at our house the other day who was there, I don't know, doing something for Trish, and she was uh, selling or selling something for Trish. Of course, those that know my wife, my wife was selling something. She was raised Catholic, and she, began to, she walked into my office and a little intimidated, you know, by the books and stuff, and she was like, wow. <laughs> she's like, well, she just began to freely share how she was raised Catholic, and she's Catholic, and, 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 but she knows that there's some differences, and it was just great to be able to begin, begin to share with her all the differences between Catholicism and Protestant Reformed Christianity, and uh, one of the things that we focused on was the papacy, that the Pope is not a biblical concept. And that the Pope, in fact, is actually a very blasphemous office. And in fact, to see evangelical leaders joining forces with the Pope is compromise of the worst kind. So the compromise is everywhere. We'll never have 
any shortage of it. It will always, it was there from the beginning, it will be there to the end of time. As a matter of fact, we can guarantee that it's even going to become more pervasive, it's going to increase, it's going to intensify, and therefore we are going to need to know the gospel more than ever. Challenge your children. Do they know the gospel? Ask them questions. Can they articulate the gospel? Husbands, take your wife and catechize your wife. Ask her questions. Questions, answers. You know, say, sweetheart, what is justification? What is justification? What's the difference between justification and sanctification? Do you know? Because the difference between sanctification and justification can mean whether or not you are either a Roman Catholic or you're a Protestant Reformed Christian. Okay, so we need to know these kinds of things. We need to continually build ourselves up in the faith. That's what Hebrews is giving us. It is building us up in the faith. Now, two things that are being given to us here. The the first one is going to be to produce in us hope, to inspire hope in us. The second one is going to be to avoid, listen now, a fruitless fatalism. And we'll get there. But first, we see this hope-building aspect as we look at the promise of reward. This is what's so glorious about what Jesus taught his disciples. Jesus understood the nature of man. He understood what we were made up of. He understood the way that we work, the way that we function. We like reward. We like treasure. We like wealth. We like good things. We like joy. And Jesus didn't come to strip us of all of that, but he came to redirect us to show us, in fact, where your treasure is, there is your heart. So stop treasuring the wrong things and put your treasure in heaven where it belongs. In other words, Jesus was pointing us upward and onward to have an eschatological joy, to have a joy that does not fade away. And he does this here in Hebrews, or the author does in Hebrews, by setting forth a reward to us. Look at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. What is this confidence that he speaks of here? Do not throw away your confidence. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about Christ. The author of Hebrews uses the word parasea, confidence. What is that all about? Well, in Hebrews, I want to show you the different ways that it works. Here, I think he's using it comprehensively. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Then I'm going to take you back to Hebrews chapter 10. But first, Hebrews chapter 4 to show you that this confidence speaks of personal access to God. Personal access to God. It is the confidence that assures us that we have a way in to the presence of God, that we are acceptable that you have been accepted, that the door has been opened. A new and living way has emerged so that we can draw near to God in full assurance of our faith. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, or verse 14, excuse me, just for context's sake. There we're talking about our high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. He says, let us hold fast our confession, which means what we believe or what we claim to believe about Him. Let us hold fast. Fast. And by the way, if you underline that phrase, let us hold fast, hold fast, to hold fast literally speaks about having a dogmatic, immovable, almost a stubborn conviction about something. Isn't that wonderful? You can be dogmatic, it's okay. 
The Bible tells you to be dogmatic about your confession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, even as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. There's our word, parousia. Confidence. To what? To the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So that's what we do all the day long, all the life long, all your Christianity. You are going to be, you know, the, the, the throne of grace is going to be like a revolving door. You're going to be going in and out, in and out, constantly in and out, checking in, checking in. You're having a trial, you're having a bad day, you've come down with a sickness, an illness, a trial has hit the home, you lost your job, they're threatening to fire you and you don't know how you're going to pay the next bill, go into the throne of grace. Don't come out until you realize that God is your hope. God is your foundation. God is your giver. God is your provider, which is exactly what the children of Israel always forgot. Hebrew, uh, Hosea chapter 2, it says they forgot that it was I who gave them their wool, their flax, their gold, their rain. He gave them everything and they forgot. Your boss doesn't cut your paycheck. God is the one that provides bosses and jobs and economies and checks and houses and bills and Hebrews chapter 10, if you jump back there, another use of the word Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, you know this verse, brethren, since we have confidence, you see that there? And this is why I say this refers to personal access, because that confidence is not so much something that you feel, it's not kind of an existential attitude that you possess, but it is a status. You have this confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God. But the confidence also speaks of a personal conviction, a personal assurance. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, it kind of brings out the same idea. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, it says that Christ was faithful as a son over all of his house, the ministry of his people, whose house we are, if... We hold fast our confidence, the boast of our hope, firm until the end. It's a personal assurance of the things proclaimed to us in the new covenant. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Just to see that this confidence and this reward is so great. Why? Because it doesn't only pull us forward. It doesn't only point us to the future. It also points us upward to heaven to have a heavenly perspective. I've learned after, I don't know how many years of my Christian walk, but about 20 years, I've learned one thing, that what I need more than anything in the whole world, you ready for this? Pastors are not supposed to give the keys to Christianity because there are no keys. Here's one. <laughs> What's the key to Christianity? Well, here's one. Be heavenly-minded. And I mean, be heavenly minded. Think about eternity. Put your mind there. See yourself there. Think of it. See your whole life in light of it. Ponder it. Fantasize about it. Think about the moment that you will arrive. Think about the moment that you will give an account. Ponder the depths 
of eternity, unalterable, fixed forever. Your destiny, secure, locked, irreversible, irretrievable. Your fate, sealed for all eternity. You see how this will help you to start living in the present time in a different way? As a matter of fact, the author is going to go in exactly that direction. He who is coming is coming and he will not delay. Which means there is an impending eternal reality that is coming. And it should force upon us a heavenly, eternal mindset that will make us strong. Um, It will make us safe. It will make us tough as Christians. We can endure anything because we know this is not our home. Plain and simple. And we have a huge spirit of seduction that is constantly bearing down on us, sucking the life out of us, causing us to find all of our ambitions and dreams and hopes and purposes and goals only in this life. An eschatological mindset is the big one because the big challenge of our times is that everything in this world is causing us, is seducing us, is tempting us to live only for temporal things. But Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. Watch this. Reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God, through a faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I don't know if you like making reservations at really good restaurants. Do you? I do. You want to invite me to any of them, go ahead. But I love it when I know I have a reservation at a really good restaurant because I can't wait to eat. (laughs) But that is only a temporal joy. As good as a Brazilian steakhouse is, okay, this is getting you hungry, preparing you for dinner tonight. We do dinner because after our church, it's not lunchtime or breakfast time, it's dinner time. (laughs) But we have a reservation of such exceeding joy and such exceeding glory and such exceeding satisfaction that he tells us it is reserved in heaven for you. Can there be anything more glorious? I tell you what, it will cause you to suffer whatever you need to suffer in this world so that you will continually keep your eye on the prize. Look back to Hebrews 11, please. Just a, You want a real-life example of this? You want, a, you want a tangible manifestation of this very principle? Look at Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 24. Moses. Now, this is huge. Listen to this now. Is this is the exact state of mind, not only that we need, not only that we see in the life of Moses, but that we need to learn, we need to grow to adopt this. Look at what it says. By faith, when he had grown up, now this is big right here, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Huh? Well, what does it matter if you're Pharaoh's daughter? Everything. If you're Pharaoh's daughter... 
the kingdom is yours. If you're Pharaoh's daughter, then you have the right to the riches of Egypt. If you're Pharaoh's daughter, well, boy, you have security. You have insurance, as it were. You have, you have a pleasures at, at every turn. You can have any woman that you want, any food that you want, any possession that you want, any land that you want. You can have anything that you want if you're Pharaoh's daughter. So why would Moses give it up? He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What would possess such a man to do this? Verse 26. You want to talk about biblical theology? You want to talk about interpreting the entire Bible as a Christian book, Christ-centered? considering, Moses, considering the reproach of Christ, (laughs) greater riches than the treasures of Israel. You see what he's saying there? The reproach of Christ, the suffering of Christ, make it real simple, the cross. The cross, where Paul says, he became poor so that you can become rich. He knew that the cross would issue forth in everlasting treasure that far surpassed any temporary, fleeting, passing, futile pleasure of this life in this world. Just pick your temporal pleasure in this life and know, number one, it will never satisfy you. Number two, it will fade away. Number three, you will lose it. And number four, God has something better every time, no matter what it is, no matter what it is. Ultimately, this pleasure is about Christ. Look back with me to Hebrews 9 at the end of the chapter. Author of Hebrews makes this reward personal, personal. We're not looking just for streets of gold, folks. We're not looking for mansions in heaven. What we're looking for is personal. We are looking for Him. It says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, meaning He already dealt with sin, to those who eagerly await Him. You can be religious. You can go to church. You can pray, you can read your Bible, you can do all the activities and the functions of a church, but one thing you cannot do, you cannot long. You cannot fake affection. Oh, you you may be able to fake us out. You may be able to fake out the elders, the pastors, the members, the people in the church. You may be able to put on a good show, but God knows if you are longing for Him. If you eagerly, you, I don't know, if you, do you know what it means to be eager? Well, I was going to think, well, I'm very impatient, so in that way I'm very eager. But I know how to be eager about something. Eager means you're waiting for it with anticipation. You can't wait. You're looking forward to it. It's it's the fulfillment of all your ambitions and dreams. 
That's what the person of Jesus Christ should be for every one of us. We wait with expectation, with longing. We eagerly wait for Him. Do you long for Him? Because heaven is about Him. Or do you not really know Him? He's yet a stranger to you. Oh, you hear your parents talk about him. You hear your, you hear your, your family talk about him. You hear friends. You hear there's a guy at work that talks about Jesus all the time. You see religious people talking about him. You see these crazy people on the street corner preaching about him. But you do not, you yourself, you do not have a love for him. Martin Luther had this problem. Remember the testimony of Martin Luther? He was already a monk in the Catholic Church. He was serving. He was scrubbing the floors. He was flogging himself, trying to find God. And he told one of his closest uh, mentor of him, he told him, I have it here, but I don't have it here. I don't have it in my heart. I know about him, but I don't love him. I don't know him. This is what another key to Christianity is all about. Love to the unseen Jude says, keep the love of God fresh in your heart. Keep yourself in the love of God. Revive the flame in you. Do you do that? You steal away with Jesus at home on the computer. Now, there are better states than Texas. Have you been to Colorado? Beautiful, magnificent. When I landed in Colorado a few years ago, I said, I planted the church in the wrong state. Look at these beautiful trees, beautiful mountains, beautiful rivers, beautiful place. Deer walking around. It was absolutely beautiful. Now, that's beautiful, but Texas also can show you something of the glory of God in nature. Go outside, folks. Turn off the cell phone. Put the Pokemon down and walk away. Turn off the gadgets, turn off the robots, turn off the machines, turn it off. It's probably filling you full of radiation anyway. We won't go there. Look outside, look at the stars, and ask yourself, who made all this? This is how infinite God is, is that He he puts these stars in the heavens, and you remember with Abraham what he did. He said, Abraham, at night in the early stages of Revelation, especially in the book of Genesis, God had a history of appearing to people at night. Very interesting. Gerhardus Voss says it was because it was at night that man went into more of a secluded state in his mind. He was withdrawn, and he was more focused internally. And there God met Abraham and said, Abraham, come on out. Come out of your tent and look up at the stars. Try to number them. Can you count them? You can't count them. We went to the planetarium. You can't count the stars. (laughs) There's millions and billions and billions of galaxies, let alone stars. And yet the Bible says God has them all named. He knows every number. He knows every hair on your head. All of this for the purpose of us to long for Him, to know Him, to commune with Him, to have a love affair with Him. He is fairer than all the lovers in the world. He is the fairest one of them all, the fairest king of them all. 
Just like Isaiah says in Isaiah 34, 17, you will see the beauty of the king. Are you enamored by the beauty of the king? Do you long for him? Do you wait for him? Is your heart in heaven? The second thing, beyond the promise of reward, is the very real proposition that is being given to us here in verse 36, and that is that we need endurance. So the need for endurance. There's the, pro- there's the promise of reward, and there's the need for endurance. Very plain and simple, very upfront, the book of Hebrews is telling us what we need. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now, you ever, I mean, you look at the world right now. It's awful. Is it awful? It's awful. Woke up again, glanced at the news, another shooting, more dead cops, more violence. It's just crazy. The world is, I didn't grow up like that. Can you, can you bear witness to that? I didn't grow up like that. It just didn't seem like it was happening at that speed. Maybe it's because people are saying it's more connected. I don't think so. I think it's because the world is out of control. That's what I think, at least from our perspective. I mean, who does this? Who gets in a car, a truck, and mows down 100 people? I mean, we live in a world that's awful, awful. But if the world is so awful, why does God want us to stay in it any longer? You ever thought about that? Why am I here? Why am I in this awful world? Well, you know that what follows regeneration is justification. And what follows justification is progressive sanctification. Well, I'm not giving you a rough order. But then is glorification. But notice, God doesn't take us from regeneration to glorification. In other words, the aim of God in keeping us here is to purify us. He is concerned, you ever care how much God loves you? You know it by the way that He wants to fashion and form you and shape you. Just like you love your child, you love your daughter, you love your son, you want them to become a real a, 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 a man and a woman of principle, integrity. You want them to adopt virtue. You want them to do righteousness. You want to teach them why. You want them to have a good education. You want them to be, be, be as good as they can be in the sense of their person, their character. Well, God, our Heavenly Father, cares about us even more than that. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Endurance produces purity. Purity of character, purity of heart, purity of mind, purity of motive. Endurance breaks us down. It shows us how dependent we are, how much we need God. That's why he doesn't fast-track us into glory. Three things I want to point out that endurance produces. Number one, humility. Humility. It's humbling to be told what you need. And God tells us very explicitly, you need this. 
endurance. You may not think that you need it. You may think that you have arrived. You may think you have enough of it. But let me tell you something. Dependence on God, good. Independence, bad. God seeks to strip it of us, from us, take independence out of us, and replace it with humble, dependent hearts. Secondly, obedience. Endurance produces an obedient heart. That's what he wants. That's what he wants from us. Proving character. Romans 5.3 says not only this, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. I'll get to hope in a moment. But he wants us to be obedient men and women. You know, can I tell you something? Christianity, or our Christian life, is often overcomplicated by the way that we do things. Uh, especially if you have really bad doctrine. Like, for example, if you had a bad theology of the will of God. We're here talking about the will of God, right? You have bad theology about the will of God, you may not know what the will of God is. And there's some people that teach that God's will is a mystery. You have to go kind of search it out. He's letting you do things through His permissive will, but you need to find His perfect will. Who knows if you married the perfect spouse? Maybe that wasn't the perfect will for your life. These kinds of radical, sub-biblical things. But... In many passages of Scripture, the Bible tells us very simply how to live the Christian life. If you feel confused, if you feel overwhelmed, maybe you're trying to learn, you're trying to grasp, and you're trying to be sanctified, you're you're working on this part of Christianity, this part of Christianity, this part of your walk, your marriage, your child-rearing, whatever, when you get to the point where you're sort of fizzling out mentally, spiritually, come back to some basic fundamental concrete truths that you can build your life on. You know, R.C. Sproul has a, he has a habit of this. What he will do on an annual basis is he will write down the things he's absolutely sure about. And he knows, for example, this is R.C. Sproul. He is 100% sure that regeneration precedes uh, justification and therefore salvation is monergistic. But that's R.C. Sproul, <laughs> Right? <laughs> A typical thing that R.C. Sproul would distill everything down to basics, right? Let me give you a basic. Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires. You ever wonder like that? What does God want from me? Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humble with your God. Period. Case closed. Focus on that, being a righteous, just person. Focus on that, being kind, gracious, and loving to your neighbor. Focus on that, walking humbly with the Lord, acknowledging constantly your dependence upon Him. When you do that, your life will be filled with hope. You will have an otherworldly perspective of your trials that will cause you to rise above the fray and cope with worship in your heart. I'm always reminded of the letter that Sarah Edwards wrote to her daughter after the death of her renowned theologian husband, Jonathan Edwards. You read this? This is in 1758, March 22, 1758. Sarah Edwards is writing a letter to her daughter 
about the passing of Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan theologian, and listen to her otherworldly attitude. We need this. Uh, This is a great example for us to, to follow. Listen to what she says. My very dear child, what should I say? A holy God has, a holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands over our mouths. Sarah Edwards was not about to question God. The Lord has done it. She was also a Calvinist. He has made me to adore His goodness that we may long for Him. But my God lives. Excuse me, I got that wrong. He has made me to adore His goodness that we had Him, Jonathan Edwards, so long. But my God lives, and He has my heart. That's nuclear strength for Christianity right there. God lives, and He has my heart. She says, oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left for us. We are all given to God, and there I am. And there I love to be, your ever-affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. She had such a grip on eternity. This woman had one foot in the throne of grace at all times. This woman was ever before her God. This woman had a joy that was far greater than being married to Jonathan Edwards or whatever his famous name was in the theological circles of Christianity. Who cares when God is my God and He lives and He has me in His heart, in His hand? Who cares what befalls me in this world when God is my God, He is my rock, He's my hope, He is my hiding place, he is my, He's my salvation and my satisfaction. Do you see now why we need endurance? Because we're fickle. Christians are easily shakable, movable. What's wrong with us? We're weak in our commitment. And this is not some sort of self-deprecating moment, but it's just acknowledging the truth. We're so easily blown and tossed. Any little trial shakes us, blows us over. Something happens at work. Somebody cuts us off. We're late to this, late to that. Somebody said something weird to us. We get all messed up, and boom, boom, boom. Next thing you know, we live in the flesh, not in the spirit anymore. We better take heed to what God says regarding having an eternal mindset that will cause us to rise above our trials, our circumstances, and this crazy world that we live in. Father, I pray that specifically for your people. Strengthen us, O God. We cry out and we confess to you that we are bankrupt of any spiritual strength of our own. We need you every hour as we sing. We need you, O God. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue to go through your word, that your word would go through us and penetrate us into the depth of our heart, that it would change us and mold us and conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus, who is the perfect Christian to follow. Oh, God, I pray for your church today. I pray that as trials blow in and blow out, 
Seasons come and seasons go. People come, people go. Trials come. Father, that you would give us a constancy that is based on your faithfulness, your character, your promises, and your heavenly reward. Give us a a greater perspective of an eternal perspective so that we can have our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We can look to Him as the greatest example of all who endured the cruelty of the cross, not despising, even despising the shame, but He still endured and He persevered until glory. Strengthen us, Father. Bless Your church. Bless our day. Pray that you would draw all of your children here, that you would draw them all away unto yourself. Steal us away with yourself, that we would be with God, that we would be caught up in the things of God, the Word of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.